Today's scripture comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 4 through 16. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you. Would you please join me now in prayer? Let's pray together, guys. Father, thank you so much for your enduring grace and faithfulness. Thank you that even when we are confronted of how inadequate we are, not only to you but to our families and even to ourselves, once again we are reminded of of how precious your transforming love is to us. For your love is unlike any other love. It is a powerful love. It is a transforming love. It's a renewing love. It's a sanctifying love thereby allowing us to be the men and women that we've always wanted to be but could never be, thereby being the husbands, the wives that we wish we could be but never are able to be on our own strength, to be the fathers and mothers, to be the workers, to be the citizens that we know we are called to be, to bring good blessings to the world and yet we fail so often to do. And so, Father, we come once again asking for your grace to be at work in our hearts. As we have now heard your word being publicly read, Holy Spirit, do your work now in making this powerful word powerful to our own lives. Apply the efficacy of this word into our very hearts and our minds so that we would be renewed, we would be transformed, and therefore we would be men and women who bring good blessings to the world. Father, we ask that you would please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so, if you were a pretty serious Christian in the late 90s and early 2000s, chances are you probably had a little bracelet around your wrist, a little cord of fabric that had embroidered on it these following letters, WWJD. How many of you in here remember those WWJD bracelets. Really? How many of you guys remember owning a WWJD bracelet? Come on, guys. This is church. We don't lie at church, okay? It's okay to confess. It's okay to admit that you jumped on the bandwagon, got sucked in into buying those cheesy bracelets that were selling like hotcakes in Christian bookstores across the country. And why not? 
WWJD is a wonderful thing to be reminded of, isn't it? Those of you here investigating Christianity probably have no idea what I'm talking about, and you're thinking, what the heck is WWJD, and what does that have anything to do with Christianity? Listen, WWJD is short for what would Jesus do, WWJD, and that question really assumes something about Christians that the Bible says is absolutely true, and what is that assumption? It's this. Followers of Jesus, Christians, are to be like Jesus. Followers of Christ are to be like Jesus in such a way that no matter what circumstances, what situations that they have to face, they would respond to those circumstances and situations as if Jesus was in those same situations and circumstances to where you would do what he would do if he was in your shoes. Hence the phrase WWJD. But here's the problem. The Bible tells us that too many Christians today... Do not try to be like Jesus. Instead, they try to be Jesus. Christian, you're probably thinking to yourself, what are you talking about, Pastor? What do you mean I'm trying to be Jesus? No, no, no. I'm trying to follow Jesus. I'm trying to be like Jesus. No, no, no. You are trying to be Jesus. And it's not only you. But the Bible goes on to say that every human being that's ever walked on this earth and will ever walk on this earth until history ends is trying to be Jesus. And again, those of you here who are investigating Christianity, like, what are you talking about, Pastor? I don't even know if I believe in Jesus. I don't even know if Jesus is really who he says he is. And what do you mean, therefore, that I'm trying to be Jesus? Are you saying I want to be Jewish? Are you saying I want to do carpentry? What, what are you talking about? Well, that's what today's message is all about. Hey, we're continuing our sermon series through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And one of the things that you'll notice when you read this book is the common occurrence of a prevailing word that you read from cover to cover of this book. And that is the word vanity. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All of life is vanity. Vanity is actually the English translation of the Hebrew word hebel, which literally means breath of air. Hebel, hebel, says Kohelet, the preacher. All of life is hebel. Breath of air. Now, you may think, well, that's kind of odd. What does that mean? Well, actually, you already do know what Solomon means. Because he's referring to a breath of air that you and I constantly breathe out all the time. It's this. (sighs) The sigh. That breath of air that we release out of our lungs that expresses our frustrations, our fears, our sense of failure as we live in a world that seems like it is against us. And today in our passage, King Solomon, the author of this book, is going to highlight one particular reason as to why you and I feel so defeated and why we sigh so much. And it all has to do with this tendency that we have of trying to be Jesus rather than striving to be like Jesus. The reason why you and I are constantly sighing and frustrated with ourselves is because we are struggling to be Jesus rather than striving to be like Jesus. So with that in mind, if you're a note taker, three things I'd like to share with you this morning. First, let's talk about the primary way we try to be Jesus. The primary way we try to be Jesus. Number two, the consequences of trying to be Jesus. And finally, the only way to stop trying to be Jesus. The primary way we try to be Jesus, the consequences that happen when you do that. And finally, the only way to stop doing that. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the primary way we try to be Jesus. In the 1940s here in New York City, there was a very popular, very successful Broadway show called Annie Get Your Gun. And in that musical, there was a very popular song that sometimes you may still hear today on commercials. It's a song that's simply titled, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better. 
It's actually a duet with the two main singers of this show, Annie Oakley and Frank Butler. And it's really a deception to say that it's a duet because they're not really singing together. They're more singing at each other, against each other, because the whole song is talking about how they are better than the other person. The song starts off like this with Annie Oakley saying this, Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you, to which Frank, the male character, says, No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. And then Frank retorts, anything you can be, I can be greater. Sooner or later, I'm greater than you. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. (laughs) Maybe you've heard this song. It was on a Gap commercial not too long ago with Claire Danes. Do you guys know who Claire Danes is? Like, who? No. Chances are you may not recognize that song. It's an old song. But I'm willing to bet every single one of you recognize the central message of that song because it is a message that we see being lived out all the time in our day-to-day living. We see it being lived out in our families. We see it being lived out amongst our friends. We see it lived out in this city. We see it even lived out tragically in our churches. And what is this message that we see being lived out? It's the message that basically says this, I am better than you. You are inferior to me. Therefore, I am the best. Or if I could encapsulate it in one word, pride. Pride. Now, that word pride is so common in our modern vocabulary. We hear it all the time. And therefore, because we're so familiar with it, we can be fooled into thinking we know what that word means without really knowing what it really means. And so, for the sake of us being on the same page, let me read to you a definition of pride that I think would be very helpful, which I honestly think is the best definition of pride that I've come across. Listen to how C.S. Lewis defines pride in his book, Mere Christianity. He writes this, quote, Now what I want you to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. In other words, pride is the feeling that you get when you firmly believe that you are categorically better than everyone else and everyone else is categorically inferior to you. It's that conviction that gives you the assurance that you are the best of the best. Not best of the decent, not best of those who are above average. No, you are the best of the best. That's pride, right? Now, of course, there are many things in this life that we take pride in. We take pride in in things that we have, right? Oh, I have the best marriage. I have the best family. I have the best house. Or we take pride in ourselves because of what we think we're capable of being or doing. Oh, I am the best parent. I am the best friend. I am the best stylish. I am the best looking. And on and on it goes. But here in our passage, Solomon wants to zero in on a particular issue that we seem to take pride in the most. He says it to us in verse 4. Let's read it again. As he writes this, then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Here Solomon informs us that out of all the things that we take pride in, nothing comes close to the pride that we take in our work, in our toil, in the things that we do. Okay. Now before I go on, I want to make sure that you don't pre-conclude and therefore pre-judge what Solomon is saying here. 
Because what he's saying here kind of sounds like that he's against this idea of us having a good work ethic. And that could be further from the truth. Solomon is not criticizing, he's not condemning our desire of wanting to work with integrity or our wanting to work with diligence or our working to work with excellence. And the reason why I know this is because of what he says in verse 5. Listen to what he says there. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. (laughs) What is that? mean? What are you talking about, Solomon? What do you mean a fool folds his hand to the point where he just eats his own flesh? Well, he's basically saying this. He is describing that proverbial lazy person who sits on his rear end and doesn't get a job and basically contributes nothing to his family. He's talking about that unemployed loser who just sits on his hands to the point where he'll have nothing left to eat except himself. So clearly from what he's saying here in verse 5, it goes against the conclusion that we may come to in verse 4 that Solomon is against us having a hard work ethic to where we would work with due diligence and work with intensity and professionally. But what he is against, what he is trying for us to not fall into is that New York City cutthroat win at all costs so I can be the best of the best spirit that is so prevalent in our city today. The kind of thing that C.S. Lewis talks about in his definition on pride. Now, some of you are hearing this, and your New York City pride is agitated. Because you may be thinking to yourself, you know, pastor, so what if I take pride in what I do? So what if I strive to be the best of the best? Or if I am the best of the best? If I am the better one out of all my coworkers or amongst all my peers? Who cares? I mean, after all, isn't competition a good thing? Isn't being the best have its payoff? I mean, isn't competition to where people try to outdo one another, to where people strive to be better than others, results in good companies, great companies, where you have great services, great products, great firms, doing some good things in our culture today? I mean, if there was no Steve Jobs, we would not have an iPad. If there was no, you know, Who's the guy who does Microsoft? I should know this. Bill Gates. You know, there would be no, you know, smartphones. Clearly, these are good things. So why, Pastor, would Solomon be so hostile to this idea of us striving to be better than the rest, to be the best of the best, when you look at all the common good things that come out of it? Well, listen more carefully to verse 4, to what Solomon says. He'll tell you why. Read it with me one more time. Then he said, then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Interesting. Here Solomon tells us that the thing that drives us to be the best of the best, to be better than everyone, is this thing called envy. Now, envy is another one of those words that we're very familiar with, and therefore we may think we know what it means when in fact we don't. Because one of the things that happens commonly when people hear the word envy is that it thinks they think it means the same thing as Jealousy. So, for example, if you meet someone who has problems with envy, they're always envious, you may mistakenly say, oh, this person struggles with jealousy, as if envy means jealousy, jealousy means envy, as if they're referring to the same thing. But guess what? It is not. Envy and jealousy are not describing the same phenomenon. They are not describing the same concept. They are not interchangeable words. So you're thinking to yourself, well, pastor, well, then what's the difference? What is the difference between envy and jealousy? Well, let me read to you a very helpful distinction that Dr. Dan Allender, who is a theologian, how he describes the distinction of envy and jealousy. He writes this, envy is the resentful desire to have what someone else has that we don't have. Jealousy is the proper desire to protect what rightfully belongs to us. 
In other words, when you are envious, you are bitter and angry because someone has what we don't have, but we think we deserve it more than that person who has it. Whereas jealousy, however, is where we are angry because someone is trying to take what rightfully belongs to us. Here's an interesting fact. The Bible describes God as a jealous God. The Bible says that the God of the Bible is a jealous God. And when most people hear that, they immediately assume, wow, the God of the Bible, he has some character issues, don't he? Why is he so insecure? He doesn't seem like the kind of God that I would want to worship. I mean, man, a God who gets so jealous, wow, he has issues, doesn't he? No, 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 no. You are not properly understanding how the Bible understands the description of God being jealous. When the Bible says that God is jealous, it is simply saying that God is God. Because one of the things that make God God is that he owns everything and everyone. Everything and everyone rightfully belongs to him. Listen again to what it says in Psalm 24, starting in the verse first. We read, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all of its people belong to him. In other words, God is the rightful ruler of all. Therefore, he is the rightful owner of all. Everything belongs to him. Now, if that is true, what does that tell us about God? It tells us that God never gets envious. The Bible will say that God is a jealous God. It will never say that God is envious because in order to be envious, you have to want something that doesn't belong to you, that you don't have, right? But here's the thing. There's never a situation, there's never an occurrence where something or someone doesn't belong to him. Everything belongs to God. He is God. He is the rightful ruler, rightful owner of all. Therefore, he can never be envious. You see? But notice. Notice how Solomon describes the human race in our passage. What does he say? What do we do all the time? He says, we humans are envious all the time. In fact, it's our constant envying that drives us to want to be better than everyone else, to be the best of the best. Here's the question. Why is Solomon blatantly pointing out our envying as we strive to be the best of the best? Or if I could put it this way, why is Solomon going out of his way to point out that we are not God as we try to be better than everyone else? The answer, because that's exactly what we are trying to do. We are trying in our attempt to be the best of the best not simply the best of all humans, we are trying to be the king of kings, the lord of lords, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. In other words, we are all trying to be Jesus. And that is what Solomon is condemning here. He's condemning our attempts to be better than everyone else as a way to get people not to admire us, not to respect us, but to fear us, to revere us. And to worship us as if we are Christ himself. Putting all this together, what does this mean? It means this, and I want you to listen up, folks. If you struggle with envy, if you're one of those people where you see someone getting something that you think they don't deserve, but you deserve it, and you get bitter and angry. If you see someone getting rewarded with something that you wish you were rewarded with because you think you're more deserving than they, that reveals not simply a minor character flaw in you, actually it reveals that you are trying to be God. You are trying to be Jesus. Let that sink in for a moment. 
The reason why you struggle with envy, the only reason why you have envy in you, is not because you're struggling to get recognition you deserve. No, it's because you are struggling to get recognition you do not deserve because you're trying to claim the status of someone to whom you don't even come close to the status of. You are trying to be king of kings, lord of lords. You are trying to be the king, King Jesus. And when you try to strive to be Jesus rather than being content of being like him, you suffer tremendous, tremendous consequences. And what are those consequences? Leads me to my second point, the consequences of trying to be Jesus. Let's read verse 7 and 8 of, of our passage again, shall we? It reads this, again I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. What does Solomon say here happens to those of us who strive to be the best of the best, better than everyone else? In other words, to be Jesus, what happens? He says, we end up having no son, no brother, which is simply his way of saying, we have no relationships. We have no family relationships. We have no friendships to which we can depend on. In other words, we are isolated and we are alone. And if you take a look at what he says down in verses 9 through 12, he warns us of the dangers that happen when you isolate yourself as a result of your endeavor to be the best of the best. In verse 10, he says, if you are alone and you fall, woe to you because you have no one to help you stand back up. Your life will be miserable. In verse 11, he says, if you're alone and a massive storm comes that's cold and blistering, whether it's literal or metaphorical, you have no one to guard your back, no one to keep you warm, no one to shelter you from the viciousness of the storms of life that come your way. In verse 12, he talks about when you're confronted by a gang who want to beat you down, even if you're the best toe-to-toe person at an individual fight, you will have no chance. A three-quart strand cannot be easily broken. You will be defeated if you are alone when life gangs up on you. Solomon is trying to make the obvious point here that when you are upset with trying to be better than everyone else, it always results in you isolating yourself, which therefore endangers you of being exposed to dangers that you could never face and conquer alone. And this is something that even the medical community today now recognizes universally. In his book, A Cry Unheard, New Insights into the Medical Consequences of Loneliness, Dr. James Lynch writes this, quote, Loneliness, while largely overlooked, ranks as one of the most lethal risk factors determining who will live and who will die prematurely in modern industrial nations. Being alone has been linked to increased rate of certain types of cancer, elevated blood pressure, higher stress and diminished levels of mental health, and greater difficulty in recovering from trauma. Being lonely is a reliable predictor that a person will meet with an early death. It's another type of silent killer, end quote. Being alone is dangerous. Being isolated is very, very dangerous to the point where it threatens the very life to which you are endeavoring to be the best of the best in. And so here's the question. Why, therefore, are we still striving to be the best? Why are we still trying to be the top of the hill, the king, the ruler of all? Why are we so obsessed with being better than everyone else when we look at the kinds of dangers that it leads to us? Isolation, poor health. The answer, because we really, really want to be Jesus. That's why. It's that simple. The reason why we're willing to risk our health The reason why we're willing to put ourselves to so much damage is because we really, really, really 
want to be the king. Let me explain. There is a reason why out of all the various relationships that Solomon could have referred to in verse 8, he singles out two specific relationships. He focuses on the son and the brother. Why? If you were a king in the ancient world, there are only two people in your family who could take that crown away from you. You know who they are? Your son and your brother. If you ever read stories of royal families in the ancient world and you're familiar with the blood feuds that happen within families, you would know that whenever kings got their throne, they would be so consumed and so obsessed of maintaining their throne and protecting their throne at all costs, even from those they're called to love and protect, like namely brothers and sons. There are stories where even kings would go so far as to isolating themselves from these kinds of relations, which basically means they would kill their own brother or sister, or sister, excuse me, son, in order to maintain and to protect their crown. In fact, even in the Bible, we see such a figure. In the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, we come into the character of Herod the Great, who was the reigning king of Judea when Jesus was born. And if you ever read anything about Herod the Great, you would know that this was a psycho king. This guy was so obsessed of holding on to his crown that even went so far as murdering not one, but two of his own sons because he suspiciously believed. Not knew at all costs, but he suspiciously believed that each of his sons were trying to take his throne. In fact, it was so bad that even the reigning Roman emperor of the time, Caesar Augustus, once said this about Herod the Great. I'd rather be one of Herod's pigs than one of his own sons. You see, kings who are obsessed with being the king, of being the best of the best, of being the ruler of all, they are obsessed with isolating themselves, of destroying relationships that they think can threaten their reign, their sense of identity of being the king. And that is what Solomon is trying to get at by referencing sons and brothers in verse 8. He's basically saying, look, person, when you allow your envy to consume you to where you drive to be the best of the best, you're like that crazy, obsessed king. You're like King Herod the Great to where you're willing to isolate yourself and even destroy people because you assume that they're either going to get in the way of, prevent you, or inhibit you from either getting that crown or holding on to that crown. But, of course, the difference is we don't literally kill people. We kill relationships. We murder bonds of family, love, and friendships, right? And we don't just target sons and brothers. No, we target anyone and everyone, honestly, who we think will minimize or hinder or get in the way of or compete with our desire to get or to hold on to this metaphorical crown, whatever metaphorical crown that you look to to give you a sense that you are the best, whether it be the best corner office, the highest net worth, the most impressive skill or talent, the most prestigious title, the most expensive object of certain things in life, something that you point to and say, you see that? That represents my kingship. That represents that I have arrived. That represents that I have conquered the hill, that I am truly king of kings, lord of lords, that I am Jesus. When you attempt to be Jesus, the consequences are it leads you to having envy that further leads you to obsession of wanting to be the best of the best, which further leads to isolation to where you destroy your health and you destroy your loved ones to the point where you have to ask yourself, is it really worth it? Is it really worth being Jesus rather than being content of being like Jesus? And so we're left with the question, what hope do we have? 
If we know that being Jesus or trying to be Jesus is this dangerous, how can we let it go? How can we let go of this obsession of wanting to be the best of the best? How can we let go of this envy that is within us that makes us want to be the best of the best, thereby leading us to poor health and to poor relationships? Is there any hope? The answer is yes, which leads me to my final point. The only way we stop trying to be Jesus. Read again with me the last few verses, verses 13 to 16, where Solomon writes this. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people of all whom he had led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Here Solomon tells us what happens when you're successful at being the best. When you're successful at being better than everyone else. Not successful in being Jesus because that's impossible. But relatively speaking, when you're able to be the best employee, when you're able to be the best spouse, when you're able to be just the best of the best, what does he say happens? Two things. First thing that happens, you develop an unteachable spirit. You're no longer willing to take advice. You're no longer to be willing to be treated like a child needing to be instructed of how to be, right? How dare you give me advice? How dare you tell me how I should live my life? How dare you tell me that I should not be what I am now or what I should not be doing? Don't you know who I am? I'm the king. You become unteachable, which leads you to the second thing that happens, verse 16. Those who come later will not rejoice in him. In other words, no one, if you happen to be successful at being the best in whatever category you think you're the best in, no one will think that's a good thing. No one will be better off because you are better than everyone else. In other words, you being the best will result in everyone else being worse off. The consequences of you being the best means it's poor for your family, it's poor for society, it's poor for your church, it's poor for this world. The consequences of what happens when you make it to your metaphorical throne to which you think you've arrived means it's destruction for you and for your loved ones and to those whom you influence to where as a result, everyone, including yourself, just goes, Vanity of vanities. All of life is vanity. See, Solomon wants us to wake us up from this delusion that says, if only I can be the best, if only I can be better than this person, if only I could be the king, then I will be happy, then I will be satisfied, then I can finally say, no more sighing. And maybe I can get other people around me to stop sighing too. No. Solomon says just the opposite. When you do succeed... You know, succeed, quotes, in being the best and being better, being better than everyone else. You don't sigh less, you sigh more, and so do those around you. And so the question that we're left with is, what can we do about this? Well, the answer is pretty obvious. You've probably known it since the beginning of this message, which is what? Stop trying to be Jesus. Let Jesus be Jesus, not you. Stop trying to be the king and let Jesus be the king. Because think about it. What kind of king is Jesus? What kind of king is Jesus? I'll tell you. He's the kind of king who knows everything, who is categorically above everyone, 
And yet, he came into this world born as a helpless babe to be raised by people who are categorically beneath him in worth and in knowledge. He was willing to come into this world to where he had to be taught by people who are metaphysically beneath him, ontologically beneath him. In other words, he is God and they are nothing but mortals, and yet he became a mortal and allowed himself to be humbled to where he had to be taught by a man and a woman, his parents, when in fact he knew so much more than they will ever, ever know. In Luke's gospel, there's an interesting incident where Jesus' family goes to Jerusalem to celebrate the Day of Atonement. On their way back home, right, they realize Jesus isn't with them. So they're freaking out, like, where's our son? He's probably around 12 or 13 at this point. They go back to Jerusalem, and they happen to find him in the temple. And Mary, Jesus' mother, is like, what are you thinking? Don't you realize we didn't know where you were? Listen to how the rest of the story unfolds. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 48, we read, His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. But why did you need to search, he asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he meant. Then he returned to Nazareth with them and what? Was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all people. If Jesus is God, how can he grow in wisdom? Isn't he fully wise? If Jesus is growing in knowledge, how is that possible if he's the all-knowing God? The only thing is he humbled himself to the point where he was willing to take advice. He was willing to be humble by positioning himself beneath a position that was totally, totally beneath him. That's the kind of king he is. And not only that, Jesus is the kind of king who isn't willing to kill people who are trying to claim his crown as his own. Instead, what does he do? He's willing to be killed for those people who try to claim his crown as their own. Why? So that they can be forgiven of their sins, turn from their ways, repenting of their sins, so that why? They could be co-heirs with him in his kingdom, so that instead of isolating himself from these people, these people could always be with him no matter what for all eternity. Listen in on a prayer that Jesus lifts up to his father right before he's crucified. John 17, starting in the verse verse 20, we read, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one as we are in one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me, and that you love them as much as you love me. Listen to what he says in verse 24. Father, I want these whom you have given me, what? To be with me. Not isolated from me, not banished away from me because they try to take my crown, but to be with me forever where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. What's the point? Here's the point. There is no one better at being Jesus than Jesus. There is no one better at being the king than the king. And it isn't until you realize this that you will stop trying to be Jesus and instead strive to be like Jesus. You see? And that really is what the gospel message is, isn't it? What's the gospel message? The gospel message says that you and I try to do a coup d'etat against God. 
we try to claim his crown as our own. And God, Jesus being the king, had every right to do what every king should do whenever his crown is trying to be taken away from him. He should have killed us. He should have condemned us. He should have judged us. He should have punished us. Every right to do so. And yet the gospel says he does not do that. He does not kill us. Instead, he substitutes himself for us as payment for that penalty by being killed on our behalf as our Savior. If you get that gospel message, that changes you, right? It changes you to where you stop living for yourself and stop trying to live for your kingdom that you're building up, but instead you submit to the king, the real king, and you seek to live for his kingdom. See, that is the only way. That's the only way in which you stop being envious. Why? Why do we get envious? We get envious because we think that we are not getting what we think we deserve, right? Someone else has something that we think we deserve more than they, and therefore we're bitter and angry because we are being deprived of something we think we have every right to have. But the gospel brings your attention that through Jesus' death on the cross, he gave you something that you will never, ever be able to deserve on your own, something that you can never, ever wish that you could have on your own because you don't ever deserve it. He gave you himself. He gave you his acceptance. He gave you his royal status, his glory, so it could be your glory, so it could be your status, so that when God looks upon you, he loves you with the same level of majestic love as he does his own majestic son. That is what the gospel teaches us. How could you possibly be ever be envious of anything when you know that the earthly kingdoms that we try to chase after don't even match to the heavenly kingdom, the eternal kingdom that Jesus has secured for you at great cost to his own, even when you try to claim his crown for yourself? If you believe the gospel, there should be no envy, which practically means the next time you encounter someone in this church, in this city, In this world, who's better looking, better dressed, better capable, better talented than you, it shouldn't bother you. It should not bother you if you really believe the gospel. Because if you believe the gospel, if you see someone who is categorically truly above you in talent, in looks, in capability, in success, you say, so what? Because they're bettering than me is not a reflection of who I am or my status or my value because I have received something that I could never deserve and something that is far greater in worth and significance than anything that anyone can have or be better at than me. That is what the gospel teaches us. Do you get that? Do you understand that? And so I end my message with this question, NCF. Are you trying to be Jesus, or are you striving to be like Jesus? Are you striving to be the king where it leads to envy and cruelty and isolation, or are you trying to be like the king, which leads to humility, which leads to teachability, sacrificial spirit, and forgiving love, to where you seek to bless the world as Christ has blessed you? The choice is yours. What's it going to be? What's it going to be? Let's pray. Father, as we come together now, once again being reminded of the glorious inheritance that we've received through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, how could we ever be filled with sighs of envy? How could we ever be filled with frustration because we are not the King? 
God, help us to not forget that you are the glorious king and not us. Help us to see that our lives are in ruin when we strive to claim your crown for our own, trying to take something that we do not deserve as if we do deserve it. Lord, take us back to the cross. Take us back to the gospel. Take us back to you, Jesus, so that once again we would be prevented from falling into another reason to why we sigh. Father, many of us in here want to be great. Many of us in here are striving to be better than others. But Lord, we pray that you would guard us from such idolatrous motives that we would not seek to build our own kingdom, but instead we would take our rightful place stationed in the various spheres of your kingdom that you have placed us in so that we could be like the king, the true king, the humble king, the teachable king, the wise king, the forgiving king, Jesus the king. Lord, would you help us to live out this truth so that we could be a blessing in the world and not a source of sighing in it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're not going to give the Lord his tithes and our offerings. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give. But to our members, let's give to God his tithes and our offerings.